Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, you may have heard it said, sin takes you further than you intended to go. It keeps you longer than you intended to stay. And it always costs you more than you ever expected to pay. That is exactly what we're going to see clearly in this passage of scripture this morning. Um, I just want to give a reminder, specifically even for parents, uh, the next couple weeks, uh, we're going to be in some texts and covering some topics that are intense hard and at times graphic. And so we wanted to let you know that in case you wanted to take advantage of kids ministry this morning. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's, let's read this. We're going to read this whole chapter because I really want us just to feel this all together before we start working our way through it. 2 Samuel 11 verse 1 says this, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a, a woman bathing. And that woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And the one that he sent said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And when she returned to her house and the woman conceived, and she sent and she told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in tents, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, 
David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote this, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men in the city came out and they fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and he told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you're finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the, king, if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why then did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Wow. Gloomy day, heavy passage. Let's, let's start working through this and see, see what's here. The first thing that we're going to see here is that David stays. David stays. Look at verse 1 again. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. And David remained. David stayed at Jerusalem. So the weather clears up in the spring. In the spring, kings normally go out with their armies to battle. We are not for sure why David stayed and didn't go. He has at every other time so far that we've seen in scripture. It doesn't tell us explicitly, but uh, because of some of this wording, it seems as if he should have gone to battle. I mean, look at verse one. It's like he sent Joab. He sent his servants, and he sent all Israel. By that, it means the whole army of Israel. Everyone goes to battle, not David. Everyone is off fighting siege warfare on the Ammonite capital, not David. In verse 2, we see he's napping. Later, Uriah refuses to do what David has been doing. 
chilling at home while everyone else is off at battle. David is probably not where he should be here. And that indicates that he has lost sight of his role in leading the people, and he has gotten complacent in all of his success. Resisting temptation starts by being in the places that we are supposed to be and doing the things that we are supposed to be doing. Temptation, we know, it it can find us anywhere, okay? But complacency, laziness, and boredom are optimal conditions for temptation. Uh, If I'm tempted to laziness, then I should get off of Netflix and give myself to something more productive. If I'm tempted towards lust and viewing pornography, then I should stop mindlessly scrolling through my phone when no one else is around, and I should instead put my mind towards something that will rightly stimulate it. If I'm tempted to to overpurchase or overeat when I'm stressed, then never use one-touch purchasing (laughs) ever. And fill your kitchen with green food and not peanut M&Ms. How can we resist temptation to sin? Well, one way that we can resist it is we can live lives actively obedient to the revealed will of God. And we can place ourselves in the right places and pursuing the right things. And specifically, that's Christ. And this then positions us in the, in the offensive against sin and temptation instead of just being sitting ducks to it. At the time when kings normally go off to war, David stays. Next thing that we see is that David sees. David sees. Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So here's David, chilling, napping, while everyone else is off at war, fighting. And he comes out and he he walks on this roof and the, the roof of the palace would have set up above a lot of the other roofs in the area because of how the palace sat and because of the height. And so David's now looking down into the courtyards of the homes that would have been around the palace. And what happens? He sees a woman bathing and we'll see why she's bathing in the, in the later verses. And she's beautiful. In fact, the text says very beautiful. And he notices. And then it keeps going from there. He, he lusts, he desires, and inevitably he convinces himself that he deserves. Sin entices us with something or someone that we believe will satisfy us more than Jesus. And then what do we do? We convince ourselves in our self-worship that we deserve that. 
and even that we are owed that. Another way that we can resist temptation is, is we can run. Like we can flee from it is what scripture tells us to do. I think sometimes we, we think the more spiritual thing to do is to stand and fight. Joseph didn't think so. Like Potiphar's wife comes, what does he do? I am out of here. I am leaving. I'm getting away from this. No, I can't do this. Listen, we, we need to do the same thing. Run. Get away. Get out of there. Get someplace else. You're like, Nate, that's kind of extreme. Yeah, so is eternity. Run. Flee. And don't just run from. Run to something that's better. And specifically, that thing is it's the Lord, right? It's like in those moments, I got to get out of here. I got to do something else. I got to get rid of this phone. I need to be in a different place. And while I'm doing that, I'm like, oh, please, Lord, help me. Help me to want you. Help me to want what you want more than I want this sin right now in my life. Help Jesus. Imagine if, if David would have done that. David sees, next thing we see is that David inquires. David inquires, look at verse three. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And the one that he sent said this, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Do you, do you see the progression and the spiral of this? Like, he stays, he sees, and now he inquires. I mean, the text here, it makes you want to, like, step in and go, stop! Don't, don't do this! This is it's like the cliche horror movie that you watch, and, and you see someone starting to wander off by themselves, or go down into the basement, or I think there's a commercial where they hide behind the wall of chainsaws, and you're going, like, I see what's about to happen. Like, no, don't go there. Destruction, bad. Like, we should begin to feel that with this text. And, and what's the messenger say? The messenger comes back, and here's what the messenger reports back. He says, this is someone's daughter, and wife. Sit in that for a second. This is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. I mean, if nothing else deters you, this should. And here too, it's not just anyone's daughter or wife. It's Eliam's daughter and Uriah's wife. We find out like 12 chapters later from here at the end of 2 Samuel that Eliam and Uriah are part of David's 30 mighty men. Like These are his greatest warriors. They gave their lives to protect him and the mission of the king. And not only that, but because we know that Eliam is is her father, 
That means that her grandfather turns out to be one of David's closest advisors. This is not even just some random daughter or wife. This is the daughter and the wife of some of David's closest people. His advisors and his soldiers and his, his, his bodyguards. And you're like, David, don't do this. This will not end well. Next, we see that David takes. David takes. Look down at verse 4 and 5. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he, he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's important because that's probably why she was bathing at the beginning. And it's also important because it establishes a timeline here. And what we're about to hear is, is, is that she's pregnant. And this establishes very clear that this is not Uriah's baby. This is David's. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Um, there are a lot of unanswered questions in this text. And there are a ton of them just in these two verses. Um, and we could speculate, and a lot of people have, about everything that does or does not take place here. Um, but I don't know if that's necessarily wise. So what do we do? Well, we look at the text and we say, what do we know? And what has the Lord told us? And here's what we know. We know this, David stays, he sees, he desires, he inquires, and then as king, he takes what he wants. We, we also know from this text that there is nothing, hear me, nothing in this passage that explicitly says anything about Bathsheba's sin. We know she's a sinner. She's a human being, but there is zero in this text that talks about that. It is all focused on David's sin. It's all focused on what he has done and not hers. Uh, we also know from this text, and we can, we can even see it and feel it in this verses. We can see the lack of love and respect for Bathsheba. By the time we get to verse 5, look at this. It says, and the woman conceived. No name, no reference to who she is as a person. She is the woman. At this point, she's an object to David. She is a, a means to an end. There's no love. This is all lust. And it's horrible. David is acting like the ungodly kings of the world and not God's king. This chapter, no matter what your heading in your Bible might say, is it's not about David and Bathsheba. It's about David 
and David. He is the president of his own fan club at this point. He's intent on pleasing himself and not God. He's seen himself and his desires and his wants as the greatest treasure. And he is the only king that he is serving. David takes. Next, we see that David conspires and conceals. This is verse 6 through 13. David now scrambles, right, to try and cover up this sin. It, it just shows the level of deceptiveness and blindness in our hearts when we are pursuing sin. I am convinced sin makes you stupid. It does. We are blinded in our sin to what's happening. I mean, this is Genesis chapter three all over again. They saw, they saw that it was good for food and it was good to make one wise and they desired it and they took it and then they concealed what they had done. The ramifications for all of this were the furthest thing from David's mind when he was pursuing this sinful act. And so the cover up begins. Down in verse 8, David thinks, oh, I know what would be a good idea. Maybe I'll get Uriah to sleep with his wife so that it looks like the baby is hers. Great idea, David. Look down at verse 9. I want us to read 9 through 11 again. I want us to see Uriah here. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord. And he did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why do you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark, the presence of God, huh, and Israel and Judah dwell in tents right now. And my Lord Joab and his servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live? And as my soul lives, I will not do this thing. Huh. Uriah proves to be more loyal and righteous than David in this account. He wouldn't even go to his own home to sleep with his own wife. It's so interesting to see that Uriah wouldn't do what David had already done. And then in verse 13, right? The first plan didn't work, so let's try again. I have a great idea, David says. We'll get him drunk. And the thing is, David, or I mean Uriah, shows himself to have more sense and honor drunk than David did sober. And David just becomes obsessed with this cover-up. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, David says, I know what'll work. Verse 14 and 15, we see the next thing that David does. David murders. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Seriously, this is messed up. I mean, he hands Uriah his execution note and then has him carry it to the person that's going to actually do that. 
And look at verse 17. Joab obeys. And the men of the city come out and they fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. You see this? Some of the servants of David, other soldiers die because of this execution order. And then what's Joab do? He sends the messenger to David. We read this. And he tells the messenger, listen, this battle went really bad. David's going to be pretty upset. So here's what I want you to do after you explain all that. You, you can smooth it over by just saying, hey, Uriah's dead too. We took care of that. I mean, you see all the different people that are getting drawn into this and affected by David's sin. I mean, you've got the original messenger, you've got Bathsheba and now a baby and Joab and a, and a lion and Uriah and these soldiers and their families and now another messenger and on and on and on it goes. Listen, our sin is not a victimless crime. Sin hurts and it destroys and it creates carnage not only in our own hearts but in the lives of others too. But it's all okay because verse 25, David now, he encourages. Verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, don't let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and now the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And, and encourage Joab. I mean, really? There's a pep talk for Joab in the midst of this? He's like, it's okay. All these people, they probably would have died anyway. It's war, right? I mean, David's senses are completely dulled to his sin. And he is now callously just enslaved to this. And we see the last thing that David does is this. David settles down. Look at verse 26. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and he brought her to his house and she became his wife. I think that's number eight now. And she bore him a son. David settles down. There we go, right? Sin concealed. Everything's good. We're back where we began, at the palace, chilling with all my wives. But there's this one spot at the end here. At the end of verse 27, and it says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The only time that the Lord is mentioned in any of this is right here. And David may think that he's successfully covered this up, but it remains exposed to the one that matters most, to the one that's seen it all, the Lord. And David has rebelled against his law, and it's, it's evil in God's eyes. It, it's fascinating. In verse 25, 
What's David's pep talk to Joab look like? Don't let this manner displease you. And then at the end of the chapter, the thing that David had done, it, it displeased someone. It displeased the Lord. And then this chapter just ends. Okay, let's sing a song. It leaves us hanging in this icky place. And I don't think we should explain it away too quickly. Try and make ourselves feel better about it. It is a mess. It's sin. It's humanity without Christ, right? It's ugly. But what do we do with this? What do we do with this? A couple takeaways. Uh, first one is this. We are David. We are. A question for you. Do you hate your own sin as much as you hate David's right now? I mean, this is sick. And that disgusted feeling that you have in your gut after hearing something like this, it should be there. This is horrific. And we should hate this sin. But do we feel the same way about our own sin? We, we are David. I mean, he's a man after God's own heart. That's how he's described in scripture. And if he's that, and he's capable of this level of failure and sin. Let me tell you, we are. I am. But, but not only are we capable of this, we are this. Like we stay. We see and desire and inquire and take and conceal and conspire and, and murder. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa hold on. Matthew 5, 28. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. A few verses before that, Jesus compares the hate that we have internally with murder externally. And there is a whole lot of hate rolling around this world. There's a whole lot of hate rolling around in the church. See, it's, it's easier often to be more appalled by others' sin than our own. Why? Why, why is that? I think it's because we're the president of our own fan club too. I mean, we think and act as if we're the king. As if this life and everything and everyone in it exists for me. Uh, recently, uh, we were on the beach. Sorry. And uh, one morning, it was just the perfectly beautiful morning. I mean, the sun's coming up. The sand is shimmering. There's waves. There's pelicans flying over. Like, it's just fabulous. It's like one of those picture-perfect moments. And 
Amy and I are just sitting there, just in, just in awe of all of this. And, and while we're doing it, our gaze comes down and we see about a half a dozen couples that are on the edge of the water. And, and they're all taking pictures of themselves. And you're like, okay, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, there's this beautiful landscape behind them, and they're taking pictures of themselves. No, it wasn't like that. Like, they're posing. <laughs> and there's all this beauty and awe that is surrounding them. Like, just amazing beauty. And what they thought in that moment was that the world needed one more picture of them on Instagram. <laughs> but that's exactly what we do spiritually, isn't it? We take our eyes off of what is most beautiful, what is most awe-inspiring, what is most awesome, Christ. And instead, our focus shifts to us. See, when, when we are the objects of our worship, we will chase all of our desires and all of our wants, no matter what they are. And then we will demand them and take them, no matter what it takes. Why? Because I'm king. I deserve this. I'm owed this. God would want me to have this. That leads us into our, our second takeaway. So we are David. But the second thing I think we take away from this is, is this. And David is not the king that we need. David is not the king that we need, and I am not the king that I need. Jesus is king. We're meant to, to look to him, to worship him, to be in awe of his beauty and to serve him and not ourselves. See, in this passage, for the people of, of Israel, what's the hope? The hope is this. There's a better king coming. David is not all there is. And for us, as, as we come to this passage, what's, what's our hope? Our hope is that a better king has come. He succeeded where David failed. And he succeeded where, where we fail. And he is faithful to his covenant despite our unfaithfulness. Question to kind of end here that I want to ask you. What's the worst thing that you've ever done. Don't say it out loud. What's the worst thing that you've ever done? Maybe as you, as you think about that, you're like, eh, it wasn't, it was kind of small. It wasn't that big of a deal. I took a pack of gum one time. But here's the thing. No matter how small it is, scripture tells us it's, it's sufficient to separate us from a holy God. And that we can't save ourselves. And that there's a, a better king that's needed in order to reconcile us to that holy God. And that king is, is Jesus. Oh, that's hopeful. And here's the thing too. 
no matter how big and no matter how horrible that sin was that you thought of just a second ago. Maybe, maybe it rivals the sin of, of David. No matter how bad it is, you are never beyond forgiveness. You are never beyond forgiveness. Why? Because of Jesus. He's the king that we need. Our penalty was paid by him on the cross. And he took all our unrighteousness. And what did he do? He exchanges it for all of his righteousness. And now we are seen by a holy God, not in our own filthy righteousness. We are seen by a holy God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we can flee from temptation and we can war against the sin in our lives. Why? Why can we do that? Because we are forgiven. That's what we walk away from this passage with. Sin is destructive. It will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you intended to stay. And I promise you, I promise, it will cost so much more than in that moment you ever expected that you would pay. And this passage stands both as a warning to us to say, stop, don't. But it also stands out to us as hope that we will see more of even in in the next in the next weeks the thing that we should walk away i believe most from second samuel 11 is this oh lord jesus we need you we need you father help uh, forgive us for so often desiring everything else in this world, particularly ourselves, more than you. Uh, would you daily, moment by moment, open our eyes to see and behold your beauty? And would you help us to want you more than we want our sin? Would you help us to see that you are what is most satisfying and would you walk with us in pursuit of yourself? We need you. Lord, by your spirit in us, would you, would you help us to flee from temptation? Would you help us to turn from it and instead to turn towards you. Lord, there are things in our lives that are, oh, there are sins that we just battle every single day and it can be so discouraging. Would you help us to have victory? Would you help us to know that we can have victory? You are the God who does the impossible. 
And that sin that we think it is impossible to have victory over, by your power, we can. And we want to ask you to help us do that. And then we want to labor. We want to war. We want to take up arms against our sin. And we want to do it from a place of victory. We can do it because you are in us and because we are forgiven. But we're not going to be able to do it by more willpower. We'll only be able to do it by your grace in us. And so we choose right now in this moment to bow our knee to you and to worship you as the king that we need. And to express our absolute complete dependence upon you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.